This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Today, we're going to be talking about the verdict in E. Jean Carroll's case against Donald Trump, as well as the indictment of George Santos. We're also going to talk about the stumbling of the tech giants and what we think that means for all of us. And we'll end the show, as always, talking about what's on our mind outside politics. And today, that is the tragic death of Heather Armstrong. As you know, we are in our biannual moment of asking you to consider becoming a premium member of Pantsuit Politics so that your dollars can help support what we do here. We talked on Tuesday about how undependable advertising can be as a revenue source. So we really depend on our premium community's financial support to do everything that we do that grows Pantsuit Politics. And so growing and retaining people as part of that premium community is a big deal to us. And honestly, the last couple of years have made that harder. And we do need more people to join that community so that we don't lose ground over time. And more people in the community makes it better. The common threads on Patreon are wonderful. The support that we receive from our Apple Podcast subscriptions members and the feedback and just the relationship that people have with the show when they connect with us in that way are a big deal. Elena said so generously that listening to us has changed her life. She said, with full affirmation, changed my life. And I really valued that she said we treat her not as someone who is dumb, but as someone who can think through complex issues and come out differently. She says the $15 that she spends on our premium community is the best $15 they spend every month in her household because she gets Sarah's daily news briefs, my nightly podcast about things that I think are really important and supports the two podcasts that we make that are free to everyone every week. So thank you, Elena, for your support and for those kind words. Thank you to all of you who are part of the premium community, and thank you to everyone who is considering joining us there. Next up, we're going to talk about E. Jean Carroll and George Santos. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. 
They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies. So we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online, and we were discussing the fact that I am 43, and she said, I cannot believe how young you look, and I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Eugene Carroll sued Donald Trump for sexual assault. The jury found him liable for sexual assault and defamation and ordered Trump to pay Eugene Carroll $5 million. That's the high point. There's a lot more going on beneath the surface. I really did appreciate Maggie Haberman's piece where she said, there is no world in which the result of that civil trial was a positive development for the project he is most focused on, the presidential campaign for which he remains the Republican frontrunner. I think it's important for people to know that this, in my mind, was a very measured verdict. Mm. She sued him under a New York law that allows you to bring a rape or sexual assault claim many years after it could be brought as a criminal charge and with a totally different standard of proof than you would have to meet if it were a criminal charge. So instead of saying this happened beyond reasonable doubt, which would be required if you were going to deprive Donald Trump of his liberty— She just had to prove this by a preponderance of the evidence. And I am a big fan of this statute that New York has enacted, allowing people to bring these claims in a civil way, because so often survivors of sexual abuse, assault and trauma, especially people who were abused, assaulted and traumatized before the Me Too movement made Mm -hmm. it clear that they were not alone, did not immediately gather the kind of evidence that's necessary in most cases to prove rape beyond reasonable doubt. So this jury, which consisted of six men, and I think that's also something that people should know, heard the evidence that she had, heard Trump's lawyer's responses to that evidence. He did not choose to present a full defense. He did not testify. He did not show up for the proceedings and decided that she did not prove her case for rape, but that she did prove her case for sexual assault. And I thought it was also measured that the punitive part for the sexual assault claim was only $20,000. So this wasn't a jury who said, we hate Donald Trump. Let's crater him, regardless Mm -hmm. of what the merits of this dispute were or not. They had a complicated jury form. They clearly took it seriously. They did not find him liable on the rape count. And this is where they landed. And I just hate that so many Republican politicians are undermining this process when the facts show that this jury considered a civil case with a lot of diligence. Yeah, I was really mad at the NPR coverage the next day. They basically led with his attorney saying, we're going to challenge this because he can't get a fair trial in New York. And I was like, that is so reductive and 
some real like malpractice as far as covering the complexity of this case. You know, he didn't show up, but the part he did participate in the deposition was incredibly harmful. He said that she wasn't his type and then confused her for his former wife, Marla Maples, in a photo. At one point, Miss Carroll's attorney asked him, based on the Access Hollywood recording, if he believed that stars could grab women by the genitals. And he said, well, if you look over the last million years, I guess that's been largely true. Not always, but largely true, unfortunately or fortunately. I mean, he half made their case for them, especially they lean so heavily on that Access Hollywood recording. And so when you think about that he barely defended himself, and when he did show up, it was incredibly damaging. I think that even further proves that this was a very measured verdict. And to just sort of lean into their argument that, well, it was New York City, so it doesn't count, I just really upset me. It is repugnant and anti-democratic to say that he cannot get a fair trial in New York. There is no jury system If we believe that you can wipe an entire geography out of the running to sit on a jury and fairly hear the claims, there's a lot in our judicial system that operates on fiction and that relies on people to be much less biased than they are. But I got to tell you, I still think it's the best system in the world. And as we learn more about artificial intelligence, I do want humans, not chatbots, deciding these kinds of cases And I just think especially for senators from other states to act like the whole of New York is disqualified because they know Donald Trump best because he lived there and dominated their media coverage for years before Mm. he became the president or because it's a blue state or whatever you think that the whole of New York is disqualified. That is some real authoritarian garbage. And it is the kind of logic that has this entire party in its most vocal leadership saying, well, we can't trust jurors in New York. We can't trust the FBI. We can't trust the entire Department of Justice. We can't trust anyone who says anything about Donald Trump that happens to be true. Yeah. And also, it just feels like a natural progression on this road we're on where people are selecting based on geography, both progressive and conservative. You know, you saw that in the Mifepristone case. And it feels like I don't ever read a write-up about any judicial proceedings, especially in nationwide politics, where they don't tell me who appointed the judge. Just a little like, oh, just so you know. And it's so damaging. And also, I feel like it is a natural conclusion in a way to electing judges and pretending like the Supreme Court should be appointed for life and can be completely neutral. Like I do, I don't know the answer because I think this is a a manifestation of a real problem and also one that I don't want to just accept as the reality and would like to work on. And I think you see it in the coverage of the other big thing we were going to talk about, which is George Santos, who just, he, you know, there's all this case, there's all this evidence, and he's like, it's a witch hunt. And they're like, what do you mean? He's like, it's a witch hunt. You know, like, it's just that's this, enough. N- that's enough. It's this nasty virus that is just spreading that if someone with opposing politics or what you perceive to be opposing politics goes after you legally or much less just criticizes you, well, then that just gets to be thrown out. It's not valid. And I don't think this always goes both ways. I don't think you can just both sides this. I have open on my computer the entire report 
that Jamie Comer trotted out this week about Mm -hmm. Hunter Biden and the Biden family. I'm going to read every word of it. I'm going to do an episode of our premium show more to say about it because I care about that and I care about what the truth of it is. And I'm not going to say, well, these must be Trump appointed prosecutors or clearly these are biased members of Congress. I'm interested in what they have to say. I want the truth about any of these people. But to get back to George Santos, it's remarkable that the same members of Congress can say, well, Donald Trump could never have gotten a fair trial in New York, but then hang on to George Santos's vote for dear life, who was also elected in New York. Yeah. But it doesn't matter. It's not supposed to be consistent. That's not even their goal. No, it's not. But I do believe, maybe just so I can continue to wake up every day and do this work, <laughs> I do believe in my core that the hypocrisy has to have a limit, not with everybody, but with most people. I think we saw that in the midterms. And so I just think to be the party of law and justice and rising crime and to hold on to this complete and total fraudster, everybody's innocent until they're proven guilty, and also complete and total fraudster, like, is so obvious. And I just think it's it's like with the abortion and the weakness of that political moment for them that you see reflected in Donald Trump's answer on the town hall. Like, I just think that has to have impact. Maybe not as much as I would like it to. My worry is always, though, cynically, that people just go, it's all once they decide that that someone and their side of the political spectrum is conflicting, hypocritical, or just outright fraudulent, they just decide, well, it's true for everybody. It's just the whole system is like this. And I don't know how to short-circuit that reaction. And the truth is, there are problem points in the whole system. There are. What we need to be able to trust is that we find those and deal with them. George Santos could have been dealt with by the party. Mm -hmm. A strong party would have dealt with him. So could Donald Trump. That's right. (laughs) That's right. And look, Democrats don't always do this perfectly either. But we are now talking about an indictment against George Santos, an indictment against Donald Trump, a civil suit. So to focus on those two for a second, they were not inevitably the Republican nominees for their positions. A strong party could have dealt with this. Instead, the strong partisanship of base voters for that party convinced the party to become wholly ineffective around candidate selection. And that is a failure that we are all living with now. Like, I really struggle because I don't identify strongly with either Republicans or Democrats. Because Kentucky is a closed primary state, you got to pick a train if you're going to participate in that part of the process. And so I am a Democrat because I am more closely aligned with that party as it exists today than the Republican Party as it exists today. But I don't feel an affinity for either party that makes me want to jump in and get involved in its infrastructure. And I'm conflicted about that because that infrastructure is important. 
it matters that we have political parties that say, who do we want to represent us in these contests? Not just represent our voters, but represent us, the people who in the long term are invested in what the platform looks like and what kind of people we're putting up and what kind of decisions we can make as a group. Well, problem points in the system seems like an excellent transition to our next topic, which is big tech. The bubble seems to have finally burst with so much of our economy and culture built on this sector. What does the stumbling of tech giants mean for the rest of us? We're going to talk about that next. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your wild grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special. And they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box. And $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. Or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful, Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. You guys, I love my Aura frames. I have one in my office. I have one in my kitchen. I have given one as a housewarming gift. I have given one as Mother's Day, Father's Day. They are the most amazing gifts because this app is a game changer, in my personal opinion, in digital frames. It makes it so, so easy to get the pictures on there and even videos. It plays like you're in Harry Potter, you guys. It is the best. I love mine so much. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A Frames.com. Use code Pantsuit at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash pantsuit.
But the statistic got my attention as I started to do research for this show. In 2022, Apple, Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, and Meta lost a combined $3.9 trillion in market value. It's a lot of money. It is a lot of money, and I am so interested to have this conversation with you to understand what it reflects to you about these tech companies, and then also what it reflects about the nature of market value and what investors are looking for. I know I just used the metaphor of a bubble bursting. I don't know if that's quite the right metaphor for this. It feels to me more like a realistic adjustment that we did pass through a threshold, I think sparked in large part by the pandemic, where we looked around and thought, what's going on here? (sighs) What's the reality of not just these platforms and their impact on the culture? I think we spent a lot of time on that in 2016, 2017, 2018. But then with the pandemic, just with the business itself being so disrupted, people's presence inside this industry being disrupted forced all the rest of us to sort of take another look as well. And I just think it continues to grow and grow. I think the narrative that they were these behemoths, that they were untouchable, had been crumbling for a while. And just like with so many things, COVID sped up that process. I think you see it in particular with Elon Musk's purchasing of Twitter. You know, he he makes a $44 billion offer. I think on a whim. I think it was I think it was just a fun idea, just a way to feel when you're a billionaire That's in right. charge of he things. He wanted to feel. That's right. He gets cold feet and then I think the Twitter board was like, "Oh no. <laughs> this company is not worth that much. Nobody knows better than we do. You're going to overpay, we're going to force you to overpay." And so then, you know, he does sort of the classic, "I'm going to charge you for everything. I'm going to lay off all these people." I mean, Twitter staff is down from 7,500 employees to less than 2,000 since Elon Musk took charge in his sort of erratic management and, you know, just over-disclosure, just an instinct for over-disclosure, I think, has really pulled back the curtain on that one. And I think that's a good one to start with because it had outside cultural impact, but not as much industry valuation. And still, you see this pattern of behavior with Twitter, much less with Meta or Google. What I think is so fascinating about Elon Musk with respect to Twitter is that he, in one interview, will say, well, Twitter is priceless because it's Mm. speech. And having an influence over free speech in our country and in the world is a very big deal to me. And so even if the economics don't really work... I didn't do this because of the economics. I did it because of the speech issues. And if that were real, then I could sit back and say, fine. Like, he's going to create a real, maybe libertarian-leaning kind of echo chamber on Twitter. So I could say, fine, he gets to do that. He, he spent the money. He took the company private. He made these decisions and rules. I don't have to like them, but I don't have to be on the platform. The end. But that's not at all what he's done. Because every action since he actually purchased the company does seem to have been about the economics. 
and in the weirdest, most counterproductive ways possible. And it's just a really fascinating case study to watch. I'm not at all surprised that he's interested in doing something with Tucker Carlson. That feels like what I thought he was going to do when he bought this thing. Take it in a direction that is not for me, but that is what you can do when you got enough money and you buy a company to make it your pet project. But the verification and just the the way the technology is not good now. The algorithms make no sense at this point. I'm just kind of surprised by that side of it. Yeah, he's such a political dilettante who doesn't realize that he's a political dilettante. That's the worst part of him that shows up on Twitter, particularly around decisions to like, oh, I don't know, defend a neo-Nazi mass shooter. <sighs> but I think what's interesting, yeah, I mean, he took things that were basically priceless, like a Twitter checkmark, <laughs> and made them... Completely worthless, where people are like, I didn't get this. Even I don't want it. gauche, right? Like, you yeah, don't like, want it actively. You don't want it. But I think it's interesting because it just felt like it was just one more disruption of this narrative that these platforms are untouchable. Yeah. And these platforms are permanent. And their impact is permanent. And for that, I am grateful. And I think you see that in lots of places. And I think you see that particularly surrounding founders. I think you see this overreach and this cluelessness with Mark Zuckerberg and Meta and this going all in on the metaverse. Yeah, just one more comment on Twitter. I've become a big fan of the Hard Fork podcast. And they were talking about Blue Sky, which they they said is like a really good alternative to Twitter. You have to understand a little bit more about technology to use it at this point, but people who do are really having fun there. And as they were describing it, I was so happy that people are having fun there. And I think it sounds fantastic. And and it crystallized for me that I am not looking for an alternative to Twitter. It is fine with me to shut this part of my life down. It's just fine with me. And I think that's not going to be where everybody is, and that's okay. But it is a crack in the idea that I've had for a while that social media is here to stay and is always going to be a part of my life. And I just am seeing more and more that I don't think that's true. Yeah, and I think it's just built on these legends around these founders that their their brilliance stands alone. And their brilliance, as with any successful person, is as much about being in the right place at the right time as anything else. And I think we created this narrative that they were at, they were different. They were absent of that requirement. But that's what happened with Mark Zuckerberg. I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg's not smart. I'm not saying Elon Musk is not smart. What I'm saying is that they also benefited from timing and privilege and the way they move forward as if anything they touch will turn to gold, because that's the myth we've all perpetuated about them. It's just so obvious. Like, the ability to take this company that had real problems, Facebook has real problems, Instagram has real problems, and we were learning more and more about those over the course of the pandemic, particularly with the whistleblower with regards to Instagram and its effect on teens. And to the the ego to say, I'm not going to actually pay attention to this thing I said I cared about, which was connecting people and fix this platform that matters to a lot of people, I'm going to go in all the on this other thing, this metaverse, and when that doesn't work, I'm just going to just relentlessly cut staff. Like he called it, he calls 2023 the year of efficiency at his companies, which basically just means mass 
mass layoffs. He is closing 5,000 open positions. He's eliminated 21,000 people. It's like 30% of his workforce. And I just thought, like, for your for your company to be so focused on product and you think, well, I'm just overspending on people. I just, I cannot imagine the total and complete lack of self-awareness that must be present, even down to, like, they're requiring people to come into the office at Meta, but the leaders are all, like, living in Sydney and London and <laughs> not in the office at all. It really begs the question of what we think makes a successful business. What is good for Facebook at this scale cannot be in tension with what is good for Facebook's users. Mm-hmm. And that seems to be what's happening here. What's good for Facebook's investors in the form of these drastic layoffs that they have responded positively to, we know is inevitably going to be bad for Facebook's users. And Facebook, even though it's not the the hip new thing anymore, still has a very significant role in our overall society. It's still where schools communicate, where a mm-hmm. lot of people get their information about elections. So what would success for Facebook look like if it is only chasing the investor definition of that or only chasing what makes Mark excited as the next great product for him? That's not good. And I think it kind of points to the fact that truly great founders also know when to quit. They know when Mm -hmm. to step aside and let someone else take control of what they've built. They know when to wind down what they've built because it's time to invent something new. I mean, I don't think Jack Dorsey is like a mythological being, but the more you learn about Twitter, the more it seems like he saw way before anybody else saw that this thing was going to wind down and that he needed to put his focus in other places and he needed to think about what are the shortcomings here and what could we create that would fill those shortcomings. And, And I don't see any of that with Mark Zuckerberg. Well, I always think of the famous example of Steve Jobs, that he was just willing and able to cannibalize his most popular product, to take the iPod, this massively successful piece of technology, and make it just a little tiny square of an app inside the iPhone was a huge risk and something that I'm sure a lot of people were like, what are you doing? But to say, like, no, I'm going to do that. Now, look, Steve Jobs perpetuates this myth more than anybody else, that the sort of clarity of focus and, you know, even with Jack Dorsey, I'm not even sure if he has the clarity of focus or he's just easily distractible. Who knows? But like, I just think that all of this is leading me to something I knew all along, which this is not about vision. This is not about a better society. This is about making money. Just own it. At least Jeff Bezos owns that to a certain extent. You know, like, just be honest. Like, I just want to make as much money as I possibly can. What I don't understand about all of these men, and they are largely men. And I feel this way currently about the writer's strike and the studio heads. How many times do you have to learn that you can't make money in perpetuity at massive numbers, particularly during a time of dramatic societal change, and continue to come out on top? Like, how many different ways do the corporate giants have to learn these lessons? Like, I, I was joking with our agent when we were in Vegas that I wish I could just sit down with the studio heads and say, hi, guys, you can either transition through this massive technological change or you can keep making, you know, $40 million a year and think that you're going to get squeak out and ring out and stomp through 
to 30% growth every year forever, but you cannot do both. You know, like you just can't. You cannot do both. You have to adapt. You have to accept that some years will be slower and some years you have to lose money to do the right thing in the long run. And it's like, I guess when you're legally obligated to turn a profit for shareholders, though, every year, like there's no capacity, there's no space for any of that type of thinking. I would very much like to see Congress think seriously about what we require of public companies and what investors' rights are and how we define what makes a company successful and what shows that corporate officers are acting in the best interest of investors, because I do think there just has to be more room to sit back and say, we want to make products that we're super proud of, and we might be maxed out in our user base for that. Mm -hmm. We might be. There might not be growth available anymore. What does that mean for us? How do we manage to that? We yesterday looked at a graph from Jessica, who helps us with our finances, and it was a graph showing our advertising revenue over the course of the year, and it had lines for three different years, and we were taking a look at it. It's so ugly. It is a graph that no one in any kind of business would feel great about. It is, it's terrible, right? If you are looking for a good bet for investment, no one would get into this. And at the same time, we're kind of like, well, that looks about right. That's what our experience has been. And it's been okay. And we make it work. And we want to keep making a product that we're really proud of. But we only get the luxury of doing that because it's just me and you who have to decide if that's good enough for us as business owners. And when you take it to the public level, I just fear that we're we're prohibiting people from having that kind of conversation. Well, and then when you take it to the public level with products that the public is so involved in, where they're both the the data and the product and the user all together at once. I think we told ourselves this myth about these founders to make ourselves feel better about you being users of their products. I don't think that's the first time that's happened in human history, and it certainly won't be the last. I'm just glad we're waking up and seeing like, no, don't talk about Facebook like it's inevitable. Don't even talk about TikTok like it's inevitable. It's not. It's not anything that is built on a foundation of human behavior in the way that these products are, even artificial intelligence. Like, it's not inevitable. It's not permanent. There's too many humans involved. And I, you know, am sad for all the people, particularly the employees of the tech industry who have been laid off. And I know lots of people have lost lots of money. It sucks because the story we told about these companies is also a part of the story we tell ourselves that everybody can retire on a 401k. So, like, you know, there's a lot here that is problematic. I would take the open and honest facing of this industry over the fantasy we had been living in for so long. I'm not really guilt-laden about that fantasy because as new tools are introduced that we struggle to understand, you have to have some component that the people in charge here know what they're doing and we can trust them and we can follow them into this new space. I'm encouraged that the conversation around AI seems to be more eyes wide open than we were with social media I don't think we're all the way where we need to be, but I think we've made progress and we are asking different questions. I just want to give a little encouragement to Google. 
I know Google feels behind AI and has gone into sort of panic mode about what to do next year. I trust that Google is taking this process slower. Like I am encouraged by how slow their rollout has been, how careful it's been, especially given the fact that Google has contracts with so many school systems, that so many kids across the country are on Chromebooks and Google Classrooms and using Google Slides every day. I think they have a lot at stake. And so getting AI right and making sure that it is both harmless and helpful, as all the articles write about, I think that's really great. And I don't know what it is inside Google that is enabling them to be more cautious. I know that it's coming at a cost, but it is building trust in me to see them a little bit behind this curve. And I'm enjoying reading from some of the smaller groups working on AI the, the ways that they're thinking about this technology. You sent me yesterday a constitution for Claude, and it was fascinating to read and really encouraging and a level of transparency we've never seen about content moderation on social media. Even with Facebook's made-up court system, we haven't seen this kind of distillation of what we're trying to do here. So I hope that there are lots of lessons learned in the economic news that you just described and and all of the sort of whistleblowing and studies and social commentary that's come out around these products. I wish I was as optimistic as you. This is where my long-term history of the Democratic Party comes to play. I don't trust any of these people. I don't trust a single person in charge of an AI company. I don't trust that when there is money to be made and more importantly, more importantly, because this is the part of the process we have not paid attention to, is the startup funding. That's when people start making bad choices is when they have millions and billions of dollars invested in their company and it feels just like an enormous amount of pressure on their backs to just make money, return the investment, work hard, work quickly, break things, all that crap. You know, like that's to me, that's the underpinning of so much of what got us here that we don't seem willing or able to reexamine at all. And that's what's happening right now with AI. It's just an enormous amount of money being pumped into it. And do I trust people to make really smart, thoughtful decisions? No. The only thing that makes me hopeful is that the government and the Biden administration are stepping in and saying, do the right thing or we will make you do the right thing. And really, I think it'll end up being what it always is, which we will have to make them do the right thing. I hope there's not too much lost before that point. But I don't have a lot of hope in humanity when there's this much money on the line. I just don't see it quite as so binary. It's not that I trust them completely. It's that I see my trust growing in the the slow pace of what Google is doing around this. It's not that I think that they will get everything right, because I don't think anybody knows what the right thing is around AI right now. I think it has enormous potential to alleviate human suffering. And I think it has enormous potential to cause human suffering. And how you channel it effectively, I don't think anybody knows right now. I don't think government has that answer. I don't think the private sector has that answer. Another thing that builds trust in me, again, without trust being a a zero-sum proposition, is that a lot of the people who have created this technology are afraid of it. 
And I think that there's a healthy fear around this technology that is motivating people in addition to the money that's out there. This sense that like we do we do need to be careful with with what we're unleashing here because we don't completely understand how it's going to be used or even what it is. But I agree with you that the profit motivation is problematic. And that's where I go back to what I think government could do well is is look at what incentives have been built for people to just constantly be on unlimited growth and maximization of profit as their metric of success and and scale that back. Yeah, I just think at the end of the day, the money is a toxin, particularly at this scale. And I think you see such a difference in the AI community once chatbot became sort of public and became and rose to public awareness. And then you can already see the myths, both the positive and the negatives being written about the founders, about the technology itself. And it just feels like, not to be a negative, Nancy, that we don't learn. We don't learn. I'm happy we're we're looking with more open eyes at this industry, but it feels like as artificial intelligence grows that we're willing to apply those lessons as long as they cost nothing and cause no pain, right? Like as long as there's no sacrifice to be made, no hard choices, as long as we can keep scaling and keep making money and keep doing what we're doing, like we'll be careful and we'll talk about it and we'll maybe slow down a bit, but it's not like anybody is really putting a pause in place. And I think Google, you know, they brought their founders back. They're spooked. They're not taking it slow. They're like the all the reporting is that the team is going at like 150 percent because they're so terrified. That's an even worse position to, to act out of. Hopefully. The difference is not necessarily that the industry, which is very insular, I think, has learned something, but that the rest of us have, that the culture has learned that these giants, these insightful founders, like I said, are not inevitable. And the the more we learn about the phases of the internet and how they act on all of us and how we can see sort of patterns starting to emerge. We can all learn and sort of be on firmer footing. And I think the phases of the internet is probably a good transition to what we want to talk about outside politics. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible. And skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin and I have added ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable. Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh 
out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze, and its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code Pantsuit at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. On Wednesday, we learned that Heather Armstrong, commonly known on the internet as Deuce, died by suicide. And we wanted to talk about that here today because we're both pretty upset about it. I read Heather's writing for many, many, many years of my life. Um, I think if you're of our age, <laughs> her writing was pretty informative. The what I feel is a very derisive title that's been on many of the memorial writings on her life is that she was the queen of the mommy bloggers, that she was one of the first to write in this very open, vulnerable, and raw way about the journey through motherhood. I started reading Deuce as a young associate in a law firm because a friend of mine at the firm sent one of her posts to me and later brought me her book, It Sucked and Then I Cried. And when I saw this news, I immediately was transported back to my office when I was still practicing and Jane had just been born and I was sitting at my desk pumping breast milk with the door locked and trying to do research and wondering what I had done with my life. And when I would just hit these moments of like, oh, I'm not the crier here. This is not how it's supposed to go. Um <laughs> When I would hit these moments of like real desperation, I would open up Deuce and she made me laugh like out loud. And sometimes I would laugh until I cried. And then that crying would turn into the crying that I actually needed to do. 
and it was just, it was an important, it was just a gift. It was a real gift, the way that she wrote about a life that had almost nothing in common with mine, but there was enough there that I related to it and that it touched me and that it gave me something to hold on to in some really crappy moments. And I really regret that I never sent her an email or left a comment. I didn't understand then how important those things are to people who create on the internet. And I was so mired in my own stuff that I don't think that it it even occurred to me to think about the real human who was bringing this to me and what it cost her. So I'm just really sad. I like how you say your friend sent the post to you because it was like pre-social. The only way to go viral is because everybody was just sharing the shit out of whatever you shared on the internet, which is so powerful to think about. Now, I have a really different perspective and relationship with Heather's work. I didn't necessarily identify really strongly with those aspects of her parenting journey. I didn't suffer from postpartum depression. I didn't feel overwhelmed and sort of stripped out by my early journey of parenting. And I probably read her blog more regularly before I became a mom. The ways that I really followed and watched and learned from her really were professionally. I started my mommy blog with my friend Sarah in 2011, I think it was. So this was like at her zenith. 2009, I think, was the year that she was named sort of queen of the mommy bloggers and named as such a powerful figure on Forbes. And so just like watching her just continue to succeed in this space in ways that felt like achievable and also impossible because she was massively successful at a certain moment in time. She was drawing in millions of visitors. She was making tons of money on banner ads and kind of would talk about it and you could see her success being played out. And so like I was both both jealous and inspired and just kind of caught up with her at that point in her career Um, and always just invested because I'd started reading her. I still remember a a post she wrote about her dog pooping a stick. I still think about it. It's so funny. And just caught up in the way she shared and the, the rawness of her writing and that you could be who you were, flaws and all, vulnerability and all, and still be successful. It just felt special. It showed me something that I didn't think was available because, you know, we grew up reading women's magazines. Everything was so glossy. And not just about parenting, about everything. Like this idea that you could show up sort of and bear yourself and find success, even though I think her success was so unfairly contained and diminished based on the fact that she was a woman and that she was writing about her journey in motherhood and her marriage and her home improvement and all that. And I think to learn that she died by suicide, you know, she I'd followed recently some of her posts and she was clearly suffering. I read somebody that said it was like seeing an open wound. You felt like you were trespassing. And I thought, yes, that's exactly how it felt. 
And I struggle with that. I struggle with that. You know, I've talked about this a lot. I struggle with that with musicians, with people who I love and I love their work and it killed them. And there's just no other way around it. There's just no other way to say that. Like they they did something. They exposed themselves. And in a lot of ways, they were punished for it. And we could all see how dangerous that was for them because of the way they'd shown themselves to us. And we just, you just feel so powerless. What am I supposed to do about a stranger over the internet that is clearly having a mental health crisis who I feel like I know? Like, we didn't have the word parasocial relationship to talk about Deuce back in 2009. You know, like, it just, it was so hard. And to hear that she is gone at 47 and these children who we watched be born and grow up don't have their mother anymore. It's just so heartbreaking. And it makes me so angry because I do think she was a pioneer. I do think that the internet we exist within was created in part by her. I wouldn't be a podcaster if I hadn't been a blogger, and I wouldn't have been a blogger if it hadn't been for Heather Armstrong. And it's just so hard to see these people who go first. Liz Lenz and her write-up had this great line about, it takes difficult women to be the first to do difficult things. And what she did was difficult, and the hate she received, and look, she lashed out too, but like, the websites that basically created an industry of hating on primarily female bloggers and influences, websites that still exist that I will not honor by repeating the name of, it makes me sick. It makes me sick. We forgot she was real. She's a real person. She was a real person, and now she's gone. Yeah, if I can um, gather myself a little bit, I think you know, what I take away is, like, we shouldn't diminish the mommy blogging industry because it Mm-mm. is one of the only things that has spoken to how incredibly hard those first few years with kids are. They're just so hard, and there are so few people and places that try to meet you there. And so how busted to diminish the folks who who met some of us there and who are still meeting some of us there. And the other thing is, like, I just keep thinking about the fact that she helped me so much and I had no relationship with her whatsoever. And here was a person who clearly suffered in the world. And I wish I had told her that her writing meant something to me. And so if you need that prompt to tell someone, anyone in your life, that what they are and do means something to you, do it. And if you're a person doubting your effect in the world, I hope you know that you you touch and influence and shape and change and make the path easier for so many people who will never articulate it to you, whether you're doing your work on the internet or not. And I just think about this description of the waves of internet writing. At first, it was like the people blogging about technology, and then it was the political bloggers, and then it was the mommy bloggers. And I hope we can acknowledge that they were all equally important. They were all equally important. And, you know, I just think about how Ezra Klein talks all the time about how his career started with political blogging. And here he is, a New York Times podcaster. And why was what he was doing so different 
and deserving of praise while what she was doing made people so angry they just wanted to tear her to shreds. They wanted to tear her to shreds. And I think we all have to ask ourselves, is it that different? You know, I've done both. I've done both. I've talked about politics and I've talked about parenting. And they're both personal and they're both fraught. But I get treated as a professional more in politics than I ever did talking about parenting. Well, I think that COVID illustrated how uh, we are real comfortable with politics until it starts to intersect with real life. Mm -hmm. And for the echelon of society that decides that Ezra Klein's work was more valuable than Heather Armstrong's work on the internet. That's really true. And it's a shame. And I'm glad that people are writing about her and that we're aware of this. And I hope that people will write carefully and with the recognition that you don't have to be a PhD to say something pretty important to lots and lots of people about one of the most difficult experiences that you can go through as a person. And if you don't care, then just walk away. This desire to tear people apart because they're successful writing about something you disagree with or you don't think is important. God, I wish we could move on from that. I wish we can see the cost that extracted in her life and put that behavior to bed. I'm not super hopeful, but what a gift that would be. Well, I want to say thank you to Heather Armstrong for her writing. Thank you to all of you who support our work here at Pantsu Politics. We will be back in your ears on Tuesday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Allie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman, Molly Kors, Catherine Vollmer, Lori Ladau, Lily McClure, Linda Daniel, Emily Neasley, The Pettins, Tawny Peterson, Tracy Putoff, Sarah Ralph, Jeremy Sequoia, Katie Steigers, Karen True, Annika Uveline, Nick and Elisa Valelli, Amy Whited, Emily Helen Olson, Lee Shea McDonough, Morgan McHugh, Danny Osmond, Jeff Davis, Melinda Johnston, Michelle Wood, Joshua Allen, Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.